This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week getting reaction to Monday's announcement from long-term care minister Marilee Fullerton, who offered a pittance of what's needed to improve staffing levels in the province's nursing homes. Now, later in the week, she offered a more substantial investment of $115 million to train 8,000 new PSWs and cover the tuition for 6,000 of those individuals. But on Monday, Dr. Fullerton announced only $4.1 million to help train fewer than 400 new personal support workers while acknowledging that 27,000 new PSWs are needed to properly staff long-term care, which has been ravaged by COVID-19. In fact, the death toll related to the virus in nursing homes is close to 3,800 residents, with well over half of those deaths in the second wave. Critics, including the Zoomers group CARP, say there was time between the first and second waves to better protect residents, and both Dr. Fullerton and Premier Ford failed to do that. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Monday, I was joined by our Monday Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief marketing officer at CARP and VP here at Zoomer Media, who said Fullerton's Monday announcement was all about optics. At this point, she's going in front of the uh, commission of inquiry later this week, I think, she wanted to have something up her <clears throat> up her sleeve to announce that um, you know it's it's kind of pathetic in in relation to what the need is and the timing. Uh, you know where were they before? It's a sum of money that could have been found, you know, in the summer without much trouble. Um, so naturally, I think there's going to be some cynicism about it, but I think the cynicism has been uh, earned over a long period of time, frankly. Bill, your thoughts about uh, today's $4 million announcement? <laughs> well, how how can one be against uh, spending money in areas needed, uh, but you can't throw money at a, a problem? It, 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 that's, it's not going to do any good in the long run until all these jobs become more secure, become better paid, and the people doing them feeling that they're valued. So uh, money's a start, but it's not an answer in terms of, of getting people to want to do this very important set of jobs that's been so underrepresented in the last year. And Peter, what about you, your thoughts well, on Fullerton's latest? You know, it's, it's a good, it's a good news uh, for Fullerton, you know, like uh, she, she, uh, I, I agree with David, like she's heading into this, uh, long-term uh, care commission uh, testimony and you know it certainly looks good that she's put she's put out this strategy to hire new personal support workers so it, it, it's it's a good new step but i i'm a little bit cynical about the uh 
motivation behind it. Well, I think, David, it would have been a, a bigger and more impressive announcement if it had been more widespread. Uh, as it stands right now, it's basically just for uh, areas around Hamilton and Kitchener. So it's it's not even in the GTA. And we all know how quickly, I mean, $4 million for a provincial government is is literally pennies. So, well, uh, well that's true. And, and, and the, that being the case, the fact that it is so modest, you wonder where where would we have been in phase two if they had done this back in the summer? I mean, if we were calling for, you know, $10 billion for training PSWs or something, something clearly that they, they couldn't have done, okay, fair enough. But I mean, we knew in phase one, we knew when we were sending the, when they were sending the army into, into some of these homes that there was a crisis in staffing. To be fair, the crisis had built up long before Minister Fullerton, so they, they weren't on the hook for that. Um, where was that at action in in uh, the interest you know the interstices between phase one and phase two would have been the perfect time to say okay we're catching our breath we're having an all out crash uh, crash program in hiring such as what they did in Quebec now we've got three hundred people in one region and it's almost uh, this kind of desperate fig leaf I think as Peter said good news it's certainly good you can't say it's a bad thing don't do it but it's so inadequate. This is all uh, stuff that should have been done months ago, so maybe it would be coming into effect now. But how long is it going to take to see the effectiveness of this small amount of uh, money, and how is that going to solve the problem across the entire uh, province? Right. It's, uh, it's what, what it really is. Uh, it, it's optics, uh, as David said, and uh, it's, a photo, it's a photo op for the minister certainly needs some some good news, but we don't see how it's going to really help uh, in the front line to help our uh, older adults in long-term care or, or in the community. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and VP at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Public health experts agree there is a race going on right now between the COVID-19 vaccines and the COVID-19 variants. As Canada receives more doses of both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and as the variants continue to spread, we also learned yesterday the AstraZeneca vaccine is now approved for use in Canada. Will enough of us get vaccinated before the variants take over and increase hospitalizations and related deaths? I asked this question of epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandon at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Well, I look at it as the as a plot on a, on a dystopian novel at the moment. If you look on the horizon in one direction, you've got the, the vaccine cavalry there, but they've, they're already late. They've lost the compass. So they're stumbling around, but they will get here. It's just we have to hang on a bit. Turn around on the other horizon, you've got the mutants. 
right? A bizarre bunch, and we don't quite know what danger they're, they're capable of, and they're heading in our direction as well. So much of our future fate is going to depend on who gets here first and whether they bring uh, good uh, steaming doses of uh, help or, uh, or, or misfortune. Dr. Ray, what about you? Why is it a good idea? I love doctors' life metaphors. I can't compete. <laughs> I'll just say that we've, we've come, the cases have come down worldwide, but they're down in Ontario to the point they were back in October when we were first considering closing. So it's a strange time to be opening up when we're still at a point where we're in crisis mode. So many of our healthcare workers are still overtaxed, et cetera. And as Dr. Slice said, we're, we have two competing factors here. One is, can we vaccinate enough? And the second is, the threat of the new variants is real. So we're in a race against when the new variants become dominant. And it does not strike me as a good idea to give the virus a head start in that race. Okay, well, on that note, uh, Dr. Karim Kurji, who is York Region's Medical Officer of Health, said he felt confident that it was time for York Region uh, to have their restrictions relaxed a little bit, which is the case as of today, based on variant activity. So it does not seem, at least according to Dr. Kurji, that there is as much of a concern about the variants in York Region. Do we know uh, as specific as that, that we can de- uh, that we can go region by region, Dr. Sly? Well, we, it's true we need to be looking at the existing situation in any region before you make a decision on it, but there's some caveats there as well. I mean, uh, if you remember in Saskatchewan, I was talking to a radio station out there way back, six, seven months ago. They were very pleased they didn't have any cases at all. And then suddenly, the next Monday morning, they had, uh, I think, the first 25 cases. It wasn't, though, in the south where the big cities were. It was in a distant Laloche, Saskatchewan, the far north. Same kind of thing happened in Kingston. Suddenly, if you remember, at a a nail salon. Yes. And then in the Maritimes as well. So it just takes the one case. So even though your pre-existing numbers are very low, to open the doors at that moment, you're sort of inviting uh, unwanted visitors in, and there's havoc. Remember, all the data we get is already one to five weeks uh, delayed or out of date. So we can't really read those with any confidence. In terms of uh, concerns around region hopping, Dr. Ray, um, certainly we know we're not supposed to, if we live in the city of Toronto or Mississauga or Brampton, we're not supposed to go to Halton region, York or Durham region. But uh, the local uh, political leaders are acknowledging that this will happen and that if we do go, we should observe all public health policies. That seems to me to be a mixed message and not uh, a good way of presenting it. Oh, absolutely. So if you're going to have a regional approach, the one great factor that will make that regional approach go out the window is domestic travel. Unless you have a way of discouraging infection from moving from the hot zone areas to the non-hot zone areas, it's a losing battle right up front. Now, even if you follow the public health guidance, it's unclear if the existing public health guidance is sufficient to control the new variants. That is why we're so concerned about this. Simply wearing a mask might not be enough. You probably need a better quality mask or multiple layers of masks and more discipline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we probably have to update the public health guidance, especially for those who are going to travel. But you're right. The message should not be follow guidance. The message should be do not travel. Do not leave your zone if you don't have to. Epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandan in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa and epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... 
Trudeau and Biden hold their first bilateral meeting. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a big week for Canada-U.S. relations as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met virtually with the new American president, Joe Biden. We knew in advance of Tuesday's meeting, the two leaders would be discussing mutual issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change, along with Biden's Buy American policies. Prime Minister Trudeau was also hoping to get Biden's assistance with helping free Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who've been detained in a Beijing prison for over two years in what is seen as retaliation for the Vancouver arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wenzhou, a request of the United States under then-President Donald Trump. And in fact, Biden did tell Trudeau he would assist although did not provide details, only saying human beings should not be used as bargaining chips. Ahead of the meeting, Libby Snymer was joined by our Tuesday strategy panel to discuss issues around this bilateral conversation. Former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. I think it's a great sign for U.S.-Canadian relations that the first, you know, virtual, it would have been a, it would have been a face-to-face meeting had it not been for COVID, but a first, the first virtual meeting uh, of sorts is with Canada, I think, says a lot to the relationship, says a lot to um, what, what the president, uh, what President Biden wants to do by way of reestablishing some links with, with our, our allies uh, in a different way than what President Trump did, which was much more antagonistic. So I think from that perspective, it's a positive sign. And I'm glad that the prime minister was able to get this locked down. I think it shows a lot, not only for us, but for the U.S. and, and gives some confidences to our businesses, hoping that they can talk about this Buy American uh, rant that, that the president is on and has been on. You know, even even his previous administration was on a Buy America or America First kind of policy. So I think the first thing that the prime minister is going to have to do is kind of relay his concerns to the president with respect to what does Buy American mean and how does it affect Canadian manufacturers with respect to our our exports to the U.S. because that could have a huge amount of, 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 of challenges. The other thing, too, is the new NAFTA the USMCA uh, agreement and how that was played out. Remember, the, the Democrats were very loath to sort of do something or to change things. And once it happened, they were very much against some of the some of the uh, clauses and, and parts of, of the USMCA. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of discussion, if any, they will have with respect to that. I guess it would be all tied into the Buy American side of it. But first off, I'm glad that we're having the call. I think it's good for, for U.S.-Canada relations. But there's a lot that the prime minister has to put pressure on on President Biden, and the question is, will we have the uh, will we have the uh, the ability and and the power, quite frankly, to push back on those issues? Karen, I mean, uh, having the first uh, what's usually a face to face. I mean, that's that's just the tradition. I mean, it's it's nothing new or groundbreaking. That's usually what's done. I can't remember if I don't think Donald Trump did it, but that was the only time. Yeah, I do. I think that this is more just, um, you know, acknowledging the tradition of meeting with Canada. But I I mean, I do think it's positive because Donald Trump stepped on a number of traditions and uh, crushed them. 
So I think the fact that <laughs> Biden is willing to acknowledge that this tradition is one worth resurrecting and preserving, I think does look favorably on our relations moving forward. But I also think he really, um, you know, I think there was a sense for, for Canada that needed to happen as well, because first out of the gate, he cancels the pipeline. You know, next out of the gate, he's saying none of the vaccines from Kalamazoo, Michigan, that are really, you know, 100 kilometers, not 100, but, you know, not that far from our border, can't actually get shipped to Canada. And so, you know, really, we did need this meeting to say, look, are we, you know, are we going to be partners in this? Because, you know, aside from the vaccine, aside from the the pipeline, which were no surprises, we have big issues that we need to work collaboratively on. And is there a willingness to do that? So I I do think it's positive. And, uh, you know, normally would just be par for the course. But, you know, given the past four years, I don't think we should take anything for granted. Charles, do you have a view on that? We're the largest trading partner with the U.S., and so it's absolutely necessary and appropriate that we are the first to have a meeting with Biden's team. And the key ministers that are behind the prime minister in these negotiations are very telling as to what areas they're going to be concentrating on, be it the economic recovery or climate change uh, or the foreign policy issues in regards to this notion of diplomacy. But we have some critical issues that have to be resolved. Vaccines are certainly one of them, and we've learned lessons from that. And that is to start having our own vaccine manufacturing here. But what's going to happen with the steel and aluminum and auto sector and other issues of of great concern for continuing trade with the United States? That has to be defined today. But the whole COVAX and the vaccines that are going to be made globally, that's also on the topic of discussion. So it's not just between Canada and the U.S. How are they going to secure vaccines globally for the benefit of Canada long term? That's part of the discussion today as well. Former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza, Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Get ready for a higher hydro bill next time. Now that the emergency order providing us here in Ontario with a less expensive fixed off-peak hydro rate expired on Tuesday. The rationale from the Ford PCs at Queen's Park is that stay-at-home orders have been lifted for most of the province. But they are still in effect here in Toronto as well as in Peel Region and North Bay Perry Sound. Not to mention that many fixed-income seniors who are most at risk of COVID-19 are basically afraid to leave their homes. Under the emergency plan, households were charged the off-peak rate of 8.5 cents a kilowatt hour instead of the regular time-of-use rates or fixed tiered rate. Libby was joined to discuss by Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant with over 48 years of engineering and management experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry, along with NDP energy critic Peter Tavins. I, I think this was a very callous thing to do, uh, particularly Brampton, Mississauga, Toronto, North Bay, Nipissing. They're still in a stay-at-home lockdown situation. And all the arguments that were rolled out uh, to continue this earlier in February, that people were at home, they were using more electricity, they weren't able to get to work, uh, still apply. Uh, if, if in fact, he thinks, if Ford thinks it has to be rolled back, well, it should be left in place, sorry, the lower rate should be left in place in the places where the stay-at-home orders are still in effect. All the arguments that were made previously are still in effect. So should the discount. I, I, Libby, people are very, very hard pressed, 
very hard pressed. I had businesses in my riding write to me yesterday saying, look, we're still locked down. Um, we still need that support. So I don't know why he's doing this, frankly, uh, why he's contradicting his earlier statements, but he's wrong to do it. It's a callous thing. Paul, uh, first of all, do you have any sense of how much extra it will be on the, quote, average bill? Yeah, the the current rate uh, that was in from January to the, near the end of February yesterday was uh, 8.5 cents per kilowatt hour. The average rate for both the time of use and the tiered uh, system uh, will go to uh, 10, 10.8 cents today. That's the average over the whole day. So, um, so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, a, a well, almost around twenty, twenty-five percent increase. Well, I should say it was a twenty-five percent decrease at the beginning of the year. They're removing the uh, the discount now. So, I think what's really important is for people uh, that are low income. When I say low income, uh, for a family of five, if you're making around fifty thousand or less, it's really important that you sign up for the discount programs for low-income families. There's a low-income energy assistance program for emergency support if you can't pay your electricity bill. And there's a a general program that runs all the time called the Ontario Electricity Support Program that pays you a discount on top of the current discount of about 22% for everybody. It pays an additional discount of between $35 and $45 a month for typical homeowners, and it can be much higher if you happen to have medical equipment that needs electricity or you're on electric heat. So it's really, really important for for low-income uh, families to go over to the OEB website and check out the discount programs for low-income families and make sure you're registered if you're not already receiving those benefits. Peter, I guess people are are grateful that they uh, don't have that situation that they had in Texas, either with absolutely no electricity or $16,000 bills. Well, we're all glad we're not in Texas this month. There's no doubt about it. Um, But I'm just going to go back, let me and say, Toronto Hydro is one utility that covers all of uh, the 416. We aren't talking about a situation where you would just do Scarborough or... Uh, Etobicoke getting one rate and the rest getting another rate. All of Toronto is one big block. I can't speak with certainty about Peel. You've got Brampton, Mississauga, and Caledon, uh, but I would not be surprised if it was one utility. Uh, and North Bay Nipissing, I don't know the details there, but we're not talking about breaking each city up into a neighborhood and having prices per neighborhood. We're talking about whole cities, and I think it's it's straightforward enough for Toronto, Mississauga, Brampton, uh, to give people that relief, and they need it. Libby, let me tell you, in the phone calls I get and the emails I get, people are pressed hard, and when they feel that they're not being supported, well, it's a a pretty terrible feeling that they have about being uh, forgotten about uh, and really abandoned, and they shouldn't feel that way. They should feel that we're behind them, government of Ontario is behind them all the way and trying to get them through this pandemic so we can get back to normal life. NDP energy critic Peter Tabbins, along with Paul Accioni, a senior management consultant in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Cameron in Scarborough phoned with the question everyone seems to have these days. Um, I just came from my mother. She's in her own apartment in Scarborough. She's 98 years old. Um, She's been held up under quarantine now for over a year. And I was wondering, how would I find out when, (laughs) when and how she's going to get her vaccine? And I phoned her family doctor this morning, and the receptionist said they have no idea or no involvement, and they don't know how to help. George in Toronto called with his thoughts on how much longer Toronto and Peel should be under stay-at-home orders. My own personal feeling is that uh, they're talking about maybe another two weeks. I think they should go for about another month for a lockdown because if they do open up too soon and things will happen probably, they're only going to have to shut down again. So why not? It's... the weather is a type of uh, you know type of weather that people aren't going out very far anyway. So why not personally just shut it down for another month and see what happens after that? And now, fight back's knockout call of the week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the fight back knockout call of the week comes from Barbara in Newcastle, who phoned with her take on for-profit owners of long-term care who've been witness to thousands of deaths during the pandemic. This is so frustrating because you cannot throw money at a corporation. These guys make billions of dollars. Why is taxpayers going in and spending our taxpayers' money when these are criminals? And the police should be involved, human rights should be involved, and the government is just throwing pittance at people while people are dying of neglect and it has nothing to do with COVID. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby and call our FightBack voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of FightBack. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.